Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mount Vigil Podcast. I am Blaine. And I'm Anthony. And today we are talking about everyone's favorite beat in the story of God. (laughs) The church. I thought I'd just start today with a quote from our boy, Joseph Ratzinger, a.k.a. Benedict XVI. I know that some of you listeners get excited when we quote our brothers and sisters in the Catholic room of God's church. So this is for you. This is, one, this is from his wonderful book, Jesus of Nazareth, which I've quoted from before. But he had this line on the temptations of Christ, and it made me laugh out loud when I read it. And he says, the temptations all have this element in their nature, which is just needing God to do more for us than he's doing right now for us to believe him. Mm. Whatever he's doing for you right now, there is this inclination in the human heart, apart from Christ, to need more. It's the the root of all sin, man. Yeah. He has this. So here we go. He goes, we make this same demand of God and Christ and his church throughout the whole of history. If you exist, God, we say, then you'll just have to show yourself. You'll have to part the clouds that conceal you and give us the clarity we deserve. If you, Christ, are really the son of God and not just another one of the enlightened individuals who keep appearing in the course of history, then you'll just have to prove it more clearly than you are doing right now. And then here's the line that tees up our conversation for today. And if the church is really supposed to be yours, you'll have to make that much more obvious than you are at present. (laughs) I feel that way every time I read a book of church history. I'm like, God, is this this what we're doing? I know, man. You said in another episode, and I have had the same experience where one time you read uh, a book of church history and almost stopped believing in God. For the first several books of church history I read, I felt that way, and then eventually I learned to forgive and let go of the need for perfection and just be comfortable with the way it's happening. Yes. See the beauty, the beauty in all of it. I think that the two skills, or two of the skills, are to see rightly what's happening and then to know how that fits into the story of God. Because if you look at... Uh, we're already getting to quote too of just how Bonhoeffer and Life Together names idealism and ide- and uh, unrealistic expectations as the number one enemy of the church. No doubt. So he doesn't he doesn't say apostasy. He doesn't say licentiousness. He goes unrealistic expectations. We all come to the church with demands, needing it to be a certain way. And that kills our ability to see what it is, what God is doing through it, and what's available. The solution to that error is to approach the church in humility and repentance, owning one's brokenness and brokenness within the church, forgiveness, realizing how fundamental that is to life together. Yeah. And hope. (laughs) What, what? I want to dedicate this episode to uh, our mutual friend who, at the end of last year, I think was at my house and asked a very earnest question, what even is the purpose of the church? Um, So to you, unnamed friend, we dedicate this episode uh, in love. It's it's a good question. And 
I think one of the first points I want to make here is just how important the fact that in this conversation, the church episode is part of the Story of God series. That alone is instructive. We are not talking about the church in some abstract vacuum. The church can, must be understood as part of the story of God. And to the degree that we isolate all the passages about it um, from the narrative, that we don't ground our understanding of the New Testament passages about the church in the Old Testament story and the, wor- the work that God's been doing for thousands of years, to that degree we are confused and we'll make a host of errors. Yes. One of the most important things that you can understand or that for you to know about the role of the people of God in the story of God is that the church is a step in the story of God. We've been trying in this series to call attention to the unified story of reality that's testified to in the Bible and say, the Bible bears witness to Christ. The scriptures testify to his story. They tell us who we are and what's going on. What is that? And we started with the triune God and his desire to multiply love. And we went into Eden and image bearing and the fall and the covenants and the people and the city. And if we have done anything like an adequate job, Now that we are on the far side of the ascension of Jesus, when we start saying things about the reconstituted people of God who are Eden and the covenant partner, who are the nation and also the temple. And so on. (laughs) And so on. The lights should begin to come on that, oh my goodness, salvation is accomplished in Jesus And what that salvation means and how it gets done is revealed in the people of God who get many terms applied to them slash us being the reconstituted body of Christ. So I have Ephesians open, but I also like an outline that you made, which I think is slightly better. So where should we go, Ant-Man? Hit it. Ephesians will be our main text throughout this conversation. Anthony, do you have any thoughts about the book of Ephesians just in general? (laughs) (laughs) So that you all know, this is an Easter egg. If you like Anthony talking, which many of us do, and you want to hear more in-depth Anthony teachings, they are actually out there somewhere. And (laughs) I'm not going to say where, but I'm just saying that in uh, the episode that aired last... You said you felt confusion around what you had taught on this podcast, what you had taught inside our church setting, and then what you had just read. Well, what Anthony has taught in our church setting, including some of his introductory thoughts on Ephesians, they are out there somewhere, and you devoted nerds can find them. Uh, That's not true. They are out there. That part's true, but you can't find them, and so really don't waste your time trying to figure out (laughs) where that that feed is. Email me. (laughs) I will tell you. All right. Ephesians 3. The mystery of the gospel revealed. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Stop. Oh my gosh. Okay. 
Stewardship. I love that word, stewardship. Stewardship. Oikonomia, oikos, house, nomos, order, law. The household order. And stewardship is taking the treasures of the house and distributing it as a patriarch should in the ancient form of the family, maybe modern, uh, distributing it to the members of the household. Epic. Do you remember, listener, friends, our conversation on Peter's confession near Caesarea Philippi and the gates of the grave and all that? Well, one of the things we called attention to was that's where Jesus says, I will give to you the keys to the kingdom. And we said that being given the keys of the kingdom has many connotations. Two of the primary ones are that of a royal house steward and that of uh, an interpreter of the way of Jesus testified to in the scriptures. So the keys of the kingdom are also the commentaries on the Bible, the authority to rightly divide the word of truth. And that's given to Peter, who represents the apostles, and the apostles are the ones whose teachings the church is founded upon. And so that authority and stewardship comes to we who are in the church. Exactly. So it's given to, we're going to get to being built on the foundation of the apostles very shortly, uh, but say, whoa, we get to Paul and he says that he has been appointed a royal house steward just as the original apostles were. Wait a second. That would mean that secondarily, God's household has a structure, but primarily that God's people take the form of a household. And that, among other things, is a kingdom. So I'm just going to jump back and read you a passage from 2 Samuel really quick. After I put a bookmark in Ephesians. All right. 2 Samuel 7. David has asked to build a house, meaning a temple, for the Lord. And the response of the Lord comes to him through Nathan the prophet. And here's the story. This is the Davidic covenant, which we could say endless things about. Now, when the king lived in his house, oh, what? And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Remember our little conversation about the word of the Lord and who that is. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling place. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Remember that term? I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you, turning the page, should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I will make for you a great name, 
and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. I'm going to skip down a little bit and say, you aren't going to build my house. Your son will build my house. And then it says, but I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. They're describing a kingdom. And so the household that we're talking about is the kingdom of God. Do you remember us talking about kingdoms and what those are? I love the intentionality with which you're just connecting the dots throughout our many hours of conversations. So uh, we started in Ephesians 3 and we say, you roll into the letters of Paul, which if you did not know already, for the most part, predate the gospel accounts. So here are some of the earliest written expressions of faithfulness to Christ expressed by his people and then the Gentiles who realized that the long-expected reign of God had become available in Christ. And Paul is talking about himself as a royal house steward. And it's easy to pass over and go, yeah, he was an apostle, which meant he had authority from Christ somehow. But it links him directly to the kingdom of God being administrator, dispensing the riches of the house as though he were the king himself. That was verse one. (laughs) I guess that was verse two. (sighs) That is a wonderful introduction to this conversation, like laying out the stakes, connecting the dots across the whole biblical narrative. If it's not too jolting of a turn here, I would like to pause and take a minute to talk about the words in question, church, ecclesia, so that we don't get too far into our conversation without basically laying out the basics. So what do you think of that? I think that sounds great. The word, because we'll come back and talk a lot more about household and house of God, both terms for the church. So I I don't want to lose that thread. Um, Okay. So the word church is an interesting word. Because it's not, strictly speaking, a correct translation of the underlying word, which is ecclesia. But let's start with understanding the word church and where it comes from. The word church comes from a Greek anglicization of the word kyriakon, um, which connects to the root word uh, kyrie or kyrie, which means Lord. And that Greek root means belonging to the Lord. And then that word, in its anglicization, passes through Proto-Germanic to Old English, and it has various forms of the word kirk. So in, like, uh, in, in, in German, uh, Finnish, a bunch of these kinds of languages. So the word kirk, then, because it's often connected with kyriake oika, oikia, which means house, or kyriake doma, similar phrase, the word kirk often is thought to mean the Lord's house. But the, the actual root is belonging to the Lord, and then sometimes it means the Lord's house, as in a temple. And in the Old English, it, it comes to indicate the building itself. And the, the reason that today, you and I, Blaine, and everyone who's listening, use the word church, it's thought that the reason is, um, who's the, the, I'm blanking, the king behind the uh, new King James? James. Uh, <laughs> is it, what's his, 
James the first. James the first. Okay, so he uh, basically guided the translation in the King James translation. He, he he guided that decision with the goal of having the authority rest on the structures in the buildings on the institution. So there was a political um, reasoning behind why the translators were were pressured to choose that translation over something more appropriate. That doesn't mean the word is polluted or bad. I, the more I've learned about the word, the more at peace I am with church being the word that we all will probably forever use to, to refer to the biblical term ecclesia and the form of our gathering together. But strictly speaking, it's not a translation of ecclesia. It's a, a, a stand-in based on uh, tradition. Woof. Wait, wait, let's just pause here for a second yeah. and clarify two points. Maybe just one point, if we can condense it. Sure. Most of us who grew up in the fallout zone of the Protestant Reformation, in particular here in the late modern West, are familiar with saying church is not a place, church is a people. And while that understanding, again, is not inherently bad— it's just slightly more nuanced than that. For sure. And understanding how can help actually disarm the harmful parts of these ideological time bombs. And so there's a wonderful book called Ideas Have Consequences. Now you've read the book because you have heard the title. And <laughs> what it says is that language, ideas, these things are designed to produce certain effects. They have an internal gravity. They're not neutral. And so the word church, as you're kind of unpacking its history, was designed to do a certain kind of thing, to consolidate spiritual authority inside buildings that related them to government authority. Even so, we don't need to throw it out because of its connections to Lord, and, I mean, if we were to open up a history of the church and look at the translation of the culture of the gospel into a Saxon context, we would find even more, probably value yeah. for that term. But what I would just say is, it's not strictly speaking true to say church is not a place, church is a people. Listen to what Anthony said, when she goes, well, church actually is a place— but it's a place that is, in literary jargon, you know, a metonymy, a synecdoche, that is a stand-in to refer to the reality of a people who are defined by their service to a Lord. Well said. Do you think we lost everyone already? I don't think so. I think that's really helpful. Um, I, I had in my notes for when we talk more about the church as the house of God, the temple, um, the, the, the same idea that like, the next time your pastor says, the church isn't a building, it's the people, you can... First of all, appreciate all the nuances of what he's dealing with when he says such a thing, and there's there's some truth in it. But also, you can kind of laugh inside, knowing that the church, one of the chief metaphors or images or realities of of life in the church, is that we are a temple. We're, we are each stones in a temple, and so the church is a building. It's a temple that the God inhabits. And I would further say that while the center of gravity of life in the kingdom of God is meant to be outside the building. The building is meant to be a good thing. Mm -hmm. 
you and I are pro building here on the Fab Angel <laughs> podcast. It's funny. Where, literally this, this morning in the shower, I was praying that God would bless me at some point with the resources or the opportunity. I keep dreaming about building like a timber framed, beautiful church structure for our people to gather in. I just have this image. I can't get it out of my head. I, I pray for it almost every single day. So I'm with you on that. <laughs> That's so good. And, and the reason is, is because the coming of heaven to earth is an embodied thing represented in certain places. It's good. And so I do see church buildings as fortresses, powerful structures that are either being used for good or less good or downright evil. So with like a, with your spiritual goggles on, when you drive through the downtown area of wherever you live and you see the old cathedrals, you should see the competition for territory yeah. between the gods against the most high god represented in making real sacred spaces. That's good. Additionally, using the translation of the word church as belonging to the Lord, it's helpful to remember that one of the earliest titles for Christians that were applied to them, I, I believe by outsiders, was those belonging to Christ. And so you can think of church as almost being synonymous with the word Christian in that particular etymological sense. This is, I love word history. Don't you, <laughs> listeners? Isn't this fun? So while we're having fun with this, let's move over to ekklesia. And ek, it's a Greek word, right? Ek, it, the prefix means out of, and klesia, or klesia, is to call. So the church in the, the Greek word, almost always translated as church, is ekklesia. Now, the two English words that are most appropriate this is almost, I've never seen any exception to this, is assembly or gathering. And assembly has slightly more political overtones um, such that it's probably the best term. And so someone like David Bentley Hart, when he translates the New Testament, uses assembly only. So you won't find the word church in his translation. I don't know of any, any other translations that do it. Almost universally, they translate the word ecclesia into church, and every instance of the word church is ecclesia. So called out people. And one of the first mistakes that one might make is to assume something that isn't strictly incorrect. It's, it's a truth about our life together, but it's not the thrust of the word, is to assume that to be called out means to separate from the world, to be called out from you know, the mess into purity and things like that. While that is the calling of the church, that's not really the, again, the etymological thrust of the term. To be a called out people has political overtones. And the image that you can have in your mind is, imagine uh, in, in Roman society, previously in Greek society, Greco-Roman society, um, a, an emissary comes and says, like, you know, with, with trumpets, let's say, and calls everyone out of their houses to come hear the news about the arrival of a king or some official decree. And so um, you have a picture of people being called out of their private homes into the public to assemble before a leader or before a decree. Okay. This is awesome. So what you're saying is that language does several things. And the first thing we're calling attention to is that the ecclesia— the called out people are those who have been heard, called out to hear the highly political good news of Jesus the King. 
That's right. The next layer that I would add would be uh, the the Old Testament precedence to the assembly. Uh, the word you word nerds were, were in Strong's uh, 6950, but it's kahal. And it's just assembly or gathering. And in the Septuagint, these words that you're about to use are, are typically are translated typically as ecclesia. Ecclesia, exactly. So in the Greek version of the Old Testament, they reflected the concept with this word. Mm. And so what I want to tell you is that the number one meaning of this assembly, one, for conflict or war. <laughs> so when the people assemble, you can look at 2 Samuel 2014, you can look at Ezekiel 38.7, Joshua 22.12, all over the book of Judges. When this assembly comes together, it is a battle formation. And so I, I pulled up actually because I think it's fascinating, but Korah, whose name is the bald one, who's a really interesting character <laughs> actually, um, leads his rebellion against Moses in Numbers 16. It says, and he, and I mean, it's fascinating who he manages to pull together, but that they assembled against Moses at the foot of the tent of meeting. And I think that most of us, if they're like me, read that and just saw a crowd coming together. But what we don't see is Korah taking the role of King Amalek to lay siege to the throne of God. And so you shouldn't see a rabble coming through you should see military formations coming and setting up to use military might to usurp the position of Moses at the footstool of God. The problem is, if you challenge God to war enough, sometimes he says, okay. If mm. you insist on fighting God, sometimes he will let you. So the word there is assembly. The two other ones are connotations. Number one, war. Two, a related con connotation is just for a rebellion, uh, which is kind of epic, actually, if you are the called out people of God. And our warfare is very different, you know, insofar as it looks like going to our enemies and washing their feet or dying to testify to Christ. But it is nonetheless the opposite of peaceful coexistence. Casting out demons. It's the trumpet sounding in the street, which is come hear the good news and wear your sword because it has consequences. And then the last meaning is for religious purposes, but it is in particular attached to assembling the tent of meeting. That's right. So it's at a place in a tent of government, which... Calls, it, you kind of begin to see the depth and nuance of a church being a place, but also a group in the place. And so it is a thing. And if it's assembly in the Old Testament sense of kahal, you're dealing with the formation of a military unit, but you're also seeing people assemble, like literally set up a tent inside of which to establish a political agenda. That's good. And just to double down on that last set of definitions, that last definition set, the idea of being called out for a religious purpose in the United States and Western liberal democratic capitalism, we separate politics and religion, but uh, these, we pretend to, we pretend, <laughs> no, no doubt. Uh, ever heard of civic religion? It's the thing that you all need to repent from. So do I. So these, these assemblies were a fusion or we're just one coherent thing, which is people 
a people, a nation, which is in and of itself a religious concept, a spiritual concept, being gathered for a, an announcement that is like again politics and 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 religion were all the same thing. Being a nation devoted to a god, uh, something that you just triggered for me. And the person that recently emailed us and said, when are you guys going to become Catholic? And I think they're going to get more and more excited in this episode, given one, we started with Benedict and two, this concept, and, and uh, I think further quotes. But uh, anyways, <laughs> that's, it's not going to happen, but I, I appreciate your enthusiasm, listener. Uh, <laughs> that listener certainly means to share riches that they are experiencing in the kingdom of God. Absolutely. So, I, I, that email, it feels like an, an encouragement, even though uh, it's not the trajectory of the Mount Vigil podcast <laughs> for reasons that are too, that are only positive. They are expressed in positive, not negative terms, and we can't quite get into it here. <laughs> but because we also have people ask, you know, I recently had uh, a friend say, if your entire church has been so shaped by Orthodox theology, why don't you all just become Orthodox? And it was a great question, actually, and it was intended um, as a blessing. And the answer about how, at this point in our discipleship to Jesus, we see all these things fitting together will be the subject of its own show. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you said this, though, because referring to that email, I felt the love, and I I love the person that sent it. And uh, the the Catholic Church and theology continues to just enrich our lives dramatically. The concept I wanted to point to is this Catholic concept of the three states of the church, which are the church militant, the church penitent, and the church triumphant. Uh, The church militant... It's something that when I first heard it, I reacted negatively to, to because there's a lot of baggage with the church. Being militant in the way the other nations of the world are it, um, in bringing violence and death and oppression, hegemony, and so on. Church penitent refers to the church that is in purgatory, but destined for uh, salvation or complete salvation. And then the church triumphant are the saints who um, are asleep in Christ and waiting for the resurrection. It's a beautiful concept, but it's interesting that the Catholic Church describes the church on earth. It's also known as the church pilgrim, but the church militant. And again, given the right caveats of what, how the church wages war, which is, as you said, through sacrifice, through um, you know seeking the welfare of the city that we're in, through, through uh, breaking down spiritual strongholds and casting out demons and, uh, and establishing um, more and more households of faith and so on, uh, it... it it gives that concept of church militant a much more generous, uh, redemptive tenor. That's so good. I'm enjoying this conversation on uh, words that are applied to the people of God. So what's next? Well, we have several key metaphors. Metaphor might be two separated a word, like uh, several key images that are, that are realities for our life together. There's the church as the temple and the house of God. There's the church as the household of God. Those are not the same thing. It's very important to distinguish these for reasons. Uh, church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Those last two are often quite related, but they're not exactly the same thing. And then finally, the church as a new nation, a race, a people. Probably am missing some things there, but whether we get to all these things in this episode, time will tell. 
which one do you want to hit? Man. You already started it with household, I, I believe it was. I want to go mi- I want to go to um household temple. Okay. Um because this is where we get uh into the connections between Eden, which is by the way the Mount of Assembly and Jerusalem and we'll just we'll just see the next part of this conversation is like an internet page where every single word is blue. <laughs> every single one is a hyperlink to something else. And every word is its own individual link. Yeah, it's like click, 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 click all the way through. Yeah. So let's go household temple. And they're, they bleed into each other, and they should. Yeah. What I'm going to say before we start is, you know, at the end of Ephesians 3, you get, for this reason I kneel before the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this interesting thing. Uh, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Which is saying, and again, this says, if you were of the tribe of Judah, you would be named for your father, Judah. Uh, but Paul is laying claim to all of the tribes, which are family units, which are also political units, as deriving their name from the father. So these family, national shades of meaning come together, or at least sit right next to each other. Mm. There's, <laughs> this conversation is just going to fold into itself. There, as, as we keep saying, there are the church is fractal, and all these images are fractal. So um, that's going to become one of the, the bingo buzzwords of this entire podcast. So Eden, you mentioned Eden. We have the Garden of Eden, the, holy, the Garden on the Holy Mountain, the Assembly of God. And then we have, at the other end of the story, foretold in resurrection, this new Eden, this new heavens and new earth with, a new, uh, with these trees of life on either side of this river flowing out to, the, to, to nourish the nations. The church lies in between. And the church is a prophetic community in that wherever we are gathered, the coming age, which is the next beat in the story of God that we'll talk about more, the coming age is inbreaking into the world now in all of our gatherings. And so all of our gatherings are little Edens. What, what? One of the ways that you know that's true, and I'll just have to tell you where it is, I gave away both of my copies of Mulholland's Invitation to a Journey and don't have funds right now to buy another one. <laughs> so, um, but in the end, he has this beautiful section on, because it's a book on spiritual formation, then he says, and the community, the life form inside of which this takes place is the church. And he's working with some theological concepts from the book of Revelation, which is, Man, I I almost opened the Revelation can of worms. All I'm saying, I'm not going to say how it works. What I'm going to say is that, you know, when the New Jerusalem, one of them, is coming down out of heaven and it gives its measurements, and I have heard the most amazing things about the fact that it's a cube, um, but cubes in sacred geography are not the same thing they are. The reason it's a cube is because the Holy of Holies is a cube inside the temple. But the measurements that are given are the measurements of the Roman Empire. And so there is a claim in that, that while Jesus is returning soon, which is the end of this present age, and therefore the end of this beat of history, and heaven and earth will be fully united, 
there is a present reality, which we keep saying, which is that the new Jerusalem is already here. The new Eden is already here in the people of God who call on Jesus as Lord. And so that image in particular is making this epic claim, which is that the new Jerusalem is one giant holy of holies, one giant temple dwelling place of God. And where that is, is inside the boundaries of the known world where the people of God are doing their thing. That's lovely. Most listeners will be familiar with the idea that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. And one way of thinking about this is that everywhere the church is, is the now. And the complete fulfillment of that with every cubic inch of the universe as the waters cover the sea is the not yet. And it's coming with the resurrection and the return of Christ. But we were saying Eden, <laughs> right? You were say, we were saying that Eden is the cosmic temple mountain where the Lord has assembled with his hosts for military and political purposes to make the rest of the world like Eden. Copy-paste, the church. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on to household. Where do you want to go? I already started talking about this. Okay. Um, One of the things, one of my soapboxes And I say this with humility and with a dogged insistence that God can work through a wide variety of expressions of the church. He can work through a megachurch. He can work through our humble collection of house churches um, that we gather in. Even yours. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's my main way of forgiving is like when 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 I see something wrong in the church elsewhere, I'm like, well, if he can use me... Uh, for as, real, as sinful though. and as broken as I am, then he can use that or he can use them. The point I want to make here is that uh, this could be its own conversation, but I just want to hit this beat that the church is built on family rules and family economy, family language. And uh, we can distinguish this against uh, what I call, honestly, pejoratively, but it's a helpful distinction, business church. And Again, God uses business church, as I call it, to do a lot of good in the world. But a business church is because is church that because of its nonprofit legal status, because of its it is an actual business with you know with 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 debt, with income, with employees, with all these structures. Uh, the metaphors often get mixed, and people often struggle, um, especially if they work within those churches, because mixing family language in reality with business reality is quite difficult and messy. And you can't get fired from your family, hopefully, but you can't get fired from your job. And, and the, 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 the problems, that's just a tiny example. The problems go on it is. forever. I have a little line on this, which I'll just insert here, which is from our boy, John Peterson, who I hope likes this podcast, but it doesn't imply his endorsement of it. He's just a very wise man. <laughs> uh, but who he says, it's okay to have a family ecosystem manage a business tool. But a business tool cannot manage a family ecosystem. And so one way actually to think about the way that these realities interact is that when a business model is the substitute for a family, you're just set up for frustration. But a family household relational ecosystem, economy, can use the tools that a business machine provides to do all kinds of wonderful things. It's one of the vehicles at the disposal of the people of God. That's extremely helpful. I remember when 
Peterson said that, and every word that comes out of that man's mouth is extremely wise. So this quote I have is from a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. I can't, <laughs> I can't recommend this book enough. The, the, the author is, is this spunky dude. I, I can't remember his name. We'll link to it. Uh, the book is just full of gems. In this chapter um, that I'm quoting from, he's talking about the church's family and how, that, how there is some conflict between a, an Eastern culture. Well, I'll just read it. Paul's vision of church life in his letter to Titus includes every member encouraging and instructing the others to embody the gospel in their behavior. The older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Older men are to encourage the younger men to be self-controlled, to, to do good, and to show integrity and seriousness. When these relationships operate appropriately, the young learn to live the gospel by the examples of their Christian family and the Christian community embodies the faith in such a way that outsiders take notice and God is glorified. This way of thinking about church is challenging to Western readers. Many of us joke that you can't choose your family, but we all know full well that we can choose our church. In the West, church is considered a voluntary association. That is, people join a church freely and voluntarily, and they take on certain responsibilities or don't as they choose. This view of church began to predominate in North America after the Great Awakening of the 1740s. Before then, people in Puritan New England, at least, became part of the church not when they chose to, but when they were baptized as infants. Later, they became full members when they gave an account of their personal experience of con conversion. Under this system, children were regarded as children of the covenant. The congregation had a responsibility to help rear them to saving faith. As a result of the awakening, however, many began to believe that the system of infant baptism led to an impure church that was mixed with believers and unbelievers alike. They feared people would have a false sense of security in their faith because they were baptized as infants, even though they had no personal relationship with Jesus. Many of the people who felt this way eventually left the older established churches to form new ones in which membership was based solely on believers' baptism. Adults who could give an account of saving faith and symbolized it in baptism then joined the church voluntarily, i.e. not because they were forced through baptism as infants. In this new system, what legitimized the church was everyone's decision to associate with it. People entered the church on the basis of their individual experience and decision. They were free to leave on the basis of their individual decision. They became part of the group, but their identity wasn't determined by the group. If we're not careful, our individualistic assumptions about church can lead us to think of the church as something like a health club. We're members because we believe in the mission statement and want to be a part of the action. As long as the church provides the services I want, I'll stick around. But when I no longer approve of the vision or am no longer being fed, I'm out the door. This is not biblical Christianity. Scripture is clear that when we become Christians, we become permanently and spiritually a part of the church. We become part of the family of God, with all the responsibilities and expectations that word connotes in the non-Western world. We don't choose who else is a Christian with us, but we are committed to them, bound to them by the Spirit, and we are not free to dissociate our identities from them, mainly because once we are all in Christ, our own individual identities are no longer of primary importance. This, this goes on a little bit, but... Uh, Let's pause and say some stuff about that. Yeah, yeah. I really like this book. I have not read this book, but that is those are some stinging observations. I should say also that as we have this conversation, we do have it with humility towards the difficulty. Like, you know, Anthony, because you've had to be around me this last year, but I have never wanted to quit 
local church life more than the last year. <laughs> and, uh, f- for all kinds of reasons, but it is, it is so challenging. Uh, what we're trying to do here also in nesting this inside the story of God is just to say what it is. And we're going to have a lot to say over time about how to do it. Uh, but this image, this non-negotiable reality is a blessing that is actually meant to be an aspi- an, like an appealing future mm. that you can aspire to. As you were talking, something I wanted to link uh, was a household is a family, household is also a kingdom. And for you, history nerds, this is actually slightly debated, but most people think that biologically related families, for reasons that make sense, because you're born and that's where you are, were the earliest form of a social institution. But it doesn't stay that way very long at all, because all families are going to include servants and friends and relations and alliances. So they immediately morph into the slightly more complicated unit, which is the form of a family unified by kind of the patriarchal names. And so, because, you know, there's lots of people in the freaking humongous household of Abraham. There's lots of people in the freaking humongous household of David. But the kingdom of David outside the Bible, you'll almost only find in the kind of archaeological record called the house of David. And so you see that understanding morphing into, is it a family or is it a kingdom? Uh, Those kind of go back and forth because a family is the substance of a kingdom, is the actual original form. But the sort of not the nuclear family obviously being a fairly modern invention, what they have in mind, what ancient people and these ancient authors have in mind when they say family is not, uh, you know, a husband and wife and their four children. It's the entire network of relationships that keeps a group of people in a place alive. And that looks a lot like a kingdom. That's a great clarification. And listener, if you're like me, um, anytime early on when I was first introduced to language associating church and family, uh, I specifically remember my friend uh, Chuck, uh, well, and his wife, my friend Kelsey, uh, she, we were at this worship event and she extemporaneously stood up and it was like a kind of a Woodstock type worship camp out in the mountains. Anyways, she had a word for the gathering and she shared that the word community is was at the time, probably still is, the buzzword, the, the main word used to talk about what we are doing when we're together as church as a way of bringing depth to our association with each other. And her point was, uh, the word community isn't good enough because you can come and go as you, as you please from community without much consequence. Uh, you know, if I go, go, to, go to a gym and I work out at a consistent time and I see all the other people that work at that same time, we're all basically, in a very loose sense of the word, a community. Um, Colorado Springs, the city that we're in is a community, et cetera. But uh, the association has very different contractual covenantal uh, links. 
So family is much more sticky and messy. Anyways, when she first said this, I, my, my, my hands clenched into fists. I was grinding my teeth. I was not happy about this. Now, I love my family. And uh, I, uh, in the years since then, I've gone through many rounds of repentance and healing and forgiveness and uh, like seeking, like having the word family be redeemed for me. So anyways, I'll just, I, I share that personal story as encouragement for you, listener. If you just don't like the, this, like what we're talking about, uh, that means that like all that discomfort is, uh, is opportunity for the father to bring restoration to you because family is what you're intended for. God puts the lonely in families. Yes. If I were to just echo what you're saying, the word communitas, the most straightforward translation would just be interests. Mm. And so <laughs> uh, it's, is there a community of mountain bikers in your region? Absolutely. And sometimes community gets more serious because it relates to everyone who's interested in a particular river being healthy. So everyone trying to manage the South Platte is a legitimate community because of the shared interest. But it isn't anything like um, the rights and the responsibilities that go with the reality of a family. And this is one of those issues where hopefully you know already, hopefully you know, but it's an ongoing process. We need to let the biblical idea of a family shape what we think of when we hear that. Because a household is a family and a kingdom. And we've talked before of, you know, oikonomos and oikologos go together, economics and ecology. And Economy is the household law. Ecology is the household patterns and the wisdom that goes into its management. And so while a family in this household model is the entire body of relationships and differing authority, differing responsibility, um, differing life stage that goes into keeping a, a people thriving, it's also the things. And so the Houses, the cathedrals, the vehicles, the money, the seeds, the grass, all of that is part of the household. So if you were to go back into kind of um, a Greek society and walk up to the estates, you know, of Pontius, it's not, it's not a very good Greek name, is it? Uh, <laughs> sorry, everyone. That's a... Latin name. Uh, if you were to walk up to the estates of Hecateus and say, where is the household of Hecateus? And in your mind, you say, where is his wife and kids? The servants and friends and craftsmen and the traders who have, you know, inside information about Hecateus, they would stare at you and it'd be like, blink, blink, blink. Uh, it's us, and it's those olive trees right there. Mm. And it's the books that uh, have all the information about the growth of those olive trees. It's this. You are looking at the household of Hecateus, even though he and his biologically related family members are nowhere to be seen. That's good. The more that we can do to break out of the nuclear family concept of, of family into something more rich and textured that includes all these uh, economic and ecological layers, the better. <laughs> Uh, if you want a couple of scriptural references for this concept of church as household, um, 
You have Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see the national citizen and household go together yeah, there. Yeah, those are all but together. But it's else, but it's a nation as a family. Exactly. The, uh, the other instance of this phrase in the scriptures, uh, the, uh, the language and the images are all over the New Testament, all over the whole, the whole Bible, um, in terms of the phrase household of faith or household of God. Um, in Galatians 6.10, there's household of faith. It says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The point Paul's making there is our acts of service and do, doing good should begin actually with the family. So we just talked about household of faith, church as household. Um, this is rel- uh, connected but distinct from the idea of church as house of God. And, and it's important to differentiate these because the house of God is its own beautiful set of images relating to the entire biblical story. And it begins with, again, the Garden of Eden as the original temple. And it ends with the entirety of creation being filled with the glory of God and being the temple. But it's most concentrated, not in you, listener, as an individual, and your body as the temple of God, which is true, but most concentratedly, most uh, it's most fulfilled, I would say. Uh, well, first of all, in Christ, but second of all, in the church, which is now the body of Christ. So the church in our assembly is a temple, and I'm forgetting the passage, but Paul talks about us being built up, or is it Peter? I believe it's Peter. He says that you're being built up into a temple as stones, and so each of us are stones in this temple of God. And in our Pentecost episode, we talked about through it, through his Passover, through um, his passion, Jesus purifying with his blood, purifying the church, the place where God would come dwell, and then in his ascension, shortly afterwards, sending down the Spirit who would then come and fill that temple, uh, open the nostrils of the idol and fill it with life, and that's what we are. We are now the temple. And one very straightforward passage on this point is 1 Corinthians 3.16, not John 3.16, 1 Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? A very important point here is that the vast majority of Paul's usage of the word you should be translated, or should be considered to you at least, as ye. Y'all. Say y'all. No, I'm not going to say y'all. You you all is what I will say. So don't you know that you all yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So while you should see yourself, your body, as a dwelling place for God and therefore a temple of God, the first thing that you should think of whenever you hear this language, temple of God, is us together in our assembly. And God's spirit dwells in our midst. This is awesome. Uh, What I want to call attention here to is a story from the book of Acts that will really, maybe, I don't know if it hasn't come together yet, um, it should now. Acts 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? 
You have lied to man, or you have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Then Sapphira comes in and dies. Okay, this story is helpful if you link it to the story in Leviticus 10, where Nadav and Avihu try to get control of Yahweh after his presence comes into the temple. So the temple is finally consecrated. It's this whole epic thing. God comes down into the midst of the people. Eden is back. God is with you. The next morning, Aaron's two sons go, we know what to do. We are going to go get control of this thing. And we've grown up among pagan nations, so we know how it works. So they put their strange fire in and they walk into the presence of God. And intriguingly, they're allowed to enter the presence of God. I've heard the craziest thing said about this um, that we won't get into now. <laughs> All it is, is they, the theophanic glory cloud surrounds them and they burn away because there's nothing good in them. Which is why those of us who are in process are like, uh, Jesus, let me repent before uh, I see you. Because purgation is easier now. Anyway, this story repeats itself in Acts 5, uh, which is, and there's a number of fascinating things. One, um, if that's true, then Ananias and Sapphira are both playing the role of priests. Do with that what you will. Um, But the temple, which has just been filled by the Holy Spirit uh, at Pentecost, is the people of God. And so, where does God dwell? In his people. Where is this house? Everywhere two or more are gathered in the name of the Lord of hosts, are gathered in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate king, incarnate God. So, household, a house is a temple. And if you understand that, actually a lot of the stories that happen um, in the New Testament and in the history of the church start to make sense where you realize, oh, the people on the foundation and in the, in the family structure of the apostles are the dwelling place of God with man and the spirit has filled them. And that shapes uh, what it means to relate to the people of God, because hmm. that's where God lives. That's good. To summarize this point, Church's Temple, I have a short quote from a book with a long title, Typology, Understanding the Bible's Promise-Shaped Patterns by James Hamilton. It's an amazing book. I'll just say that the physical, the codex itself, the physical artifact is gorgeous, and the book is so dense with information that will level you up as a student of the scriptures. So I encourage everyone to get it if you have time to read such a thing. The quote, In the old covenant, God indwelt the tabernacle, but in the new covenant, God indwells his people by his spirit, making them his temple. The corollary of this is that those who are in Christ are even now part of the new creation. The whole world was made for God to be present with his people, imaged by his people, known, served, and worshipped by his people. These realities will be fully enjoyed in the new heaven and new earth, and the church experiences an inauguration of the new creation through the regenerating and indwelling spirit. The church is the place where the omnipresent God is covenantally present, the place of the people with the authority to give assurance of forgiveness of sin, the place where God is known and served, and the place of the people who live out the inauguration of the new creation.
there's tons more to say. We have several more images of the church that we haven't gotten to, and uh, lots of other questions like, how does one get into the church, for instance? Something that, uh, what, what, what are the core elements of church life in our assembly? A lot of things. And you, listener, might have tons of questions like, um, how do I find a good church? Or how do I know when to leave the church, uh, leave a church? And um, there's uh, you know, approximately 1.5 million questions in terms of how, how do we live this out and work it out in particular doctrines and, and so on. Um, we'll get into a very small fraction of those in our next episode. But the place that we wanted to leave you was with an encouragement to practice forgiveness, to receive the grace of forgiveness. Because most likely, if you have a history with the church, you have baggage. You have individual people that you need to forgive, stories of betrayals and uh, failures, moral failures, and um, pictures of the church not living out the life of Christ, not living in a a humble, self-sacrificing way, but in a way that is over and above and oppressive. And man, we could just go on for a long time. I could go on for a long time just talking about my own baggage. And regardless of where you, like what church you go to or what your, your, your next season of life in the church looks like, whatever, whatever God's doing with you, it is universal and 100% certain that, you're, that it will go better with you if you are able to forgive. And there's a lot to say about forgiveness. The main thing I'll say before kicking it over to blame to lead us through a practice is that not forgiving other people, not forgiving God, not forgiving yourself, living in unforgiveness in general is putting, is putting yourself in a cage to punish someone else and that uh, you don't have to ignore the reality of things, of harm that was done or boundaries that need to be drawn, or et cetera, the, all the complexities of living it out, but that forgiveness is something you should desperately want because the degree to which you live in unforgiveness is the degree to which you will suffer. I know this all too well. This is huge. One of my favorite observations about friendship and relationship in general is that all relationships of any length are built upon a continued mutual forgiveness. It's just how it is. Like, are you married? Do you have siblings? Do you still talk to them? Um, If so, if you grew up with brothers and sisters and you're anything like close, then you know this lesson already. One of my Another favorite observation recently on forgiveness is that all forgiveness requires grieving, but grief won't kill you. Anger and hatred will. And there are dozens of other reasons. We could, maybe we'll do a whole show on who, what, when, where, how, <laughs> and why of forgiveness. But let's keep it simple right now. Forgiveness is a discipline, meaning it's something that we do on a regular basis. If you are in a high church context, then you know this already. Um, But if you're not, man, I can just say it behooves you to adopt a form. We've talked about examine before, uh, to let the Holy Spirit call relationships that are not quite well to your heart and practice the forgiveness. So you may know, but it's not witch hunting. Um, it's letting the Holy Spirit mediate your reconciliation. So this is what we'll do. Holy Spirit, we honor you as Lord. 
and we open our lives to you. We open our relationship with your people, our relational world right now, and we just open the, the box to you. We make available to you our relationship with your people and what that has meant. And we trust your timing, God, but we just pray that you would raise now. Just um, You have our permission to call our attention to who you would have us forgive, what you would move us, um, even to begin paying attention to. So, Holy Spirit, looking at our lives, who or what do you want to call to mind? Is it a particular person? It might be a whole institution. Is it a season of life? And as the Holy Spirit calls something to mind, the first thing that you actually have to do is to be able to cancel the debt and do everything else that needs to be done. You have to name it. And so if it was a season at a particular church, it can be as simple as, I felt so dismissed by the misuse of power. Or, I felt abused by the misuse of power. Or, if it's a relationship, it might be, I felt shamed and exposed in that relationship. Or, I felt I was attacked when I did not expect to be, and it uh, hurt a site of security. When you have that, what is it? God has called something to mind. You're able to name the thing. If you have a journal, it can be great to write it down. What actually happened? And then you cancel the debt. If you journal, I would encourage you to even put a line through it and go, but the blood of Christ is sufficient to cancel your trespass against me. I also have been forgiven. And so it was wrong, but forgiveness is an act of the will. And I forgive that church for its abuse of power. It mattered, but compared with the blood of Jesus that was poured out, it is not huge. It is significant, but it's not formative, friends. And so I cancel the debt. I release that person, that institution from debt forever. And I allow the blood of Christ to cleanse that offense and to cleanse me and my relational world, my relationship with your church, God. I pray that you would cleanse them with your blood. I, I bless my um, accuser. I bless my opponent in this case, and I release them. And I claim the cross of Christ to disarm every hold and point of entry that the kingdom of darkness was given through that sin and maybe even through your response. If there's something that comes up to go, oh, but I blank, just repent. It's good. And so I claim the cross of Christ to disarm forever every hold that the enemy was given through that sin. It is cut off now. And then it's 
both asking for restoration and then bringing that need to Jesus. And it's, Jesus, I bring my need relationally to you. I transfer it from people to you. And the need for to be seen by a friend. And I let you, Jesus, set the boundaries of my relational world, not me. Like, I transfer the need for a church to operate perfectly to you, Jesus, and to your eternal kingdom. And I ask you for your heart, for your people. I ask you to set the boundaries of interaction for me, to restore what was taken away. And I pray, Lord Jesus, to overflow with blessing. And so, just think for a moment of, Jesus, how would you have me, how would you have me bless? It might just be, like, I pray that you would comprehend all the riches of Christ. I pray that you would pour out your spirit on that church just to bless them. I pray, God, that if you are going to confront them, that you make it gentle, that you are merciful, that you lead into the way of life gently. And I disarm every tie outside the work of Christ, but I allow you, Jesus, to foster and manage the connections of your kingdom that you have given for me. Amen. Lord, he's coming. He's coming.